0: All live. Okay, go ahead. It's all yours, Jim.
1: Sadhe. Righteous. Journey. Chase. Hunt. Trial. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live.
0: Woo, woo, woo. Good stuff. We have uh, just one prayer request that came in today. Uh, uh, I'll give us the first name, Elise. She got attacked and broken nose and body trauma. She's in the hospital uh yeah, somebody attacked her, and so she's in the hospital with all kinds of oh troubles and and uh it was uh it was a uh somebody that knew this individual, so in other words we don't want uh I, I they could be threatened again, so we just want to keep her in prayer and the family in prayer that's something rather terrible at any time, but i mean if you're facing something like that, that's rather horrifying so We'll definitely pray about that, and then we also want to read this day, and uh, today is what, the 27th? Yeah. Okay, it's December 27th. We'll read that, and then we'll have a prayer, and we'll get started. Let's see here, and sorry about starting a little weird today. We're still having streaming problems with YouTube, so we had to wait until Sergio had things going, but what's that? Or Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. Okay, December 27th, theological ideas alone cannot save. But they can be seeds of spiritual transformation. So it was in the life of Ulrich Zwingli, who arrived on December 27, 1518, at Zurich, where he would play a crucial role in the Protestant Reformation. Zwingli was not born an idealistic revolutionary. He was well educated and demonstrated a keen, keen intellect. His training, not spiritual passion, led him into the ministry. In short, The ideas of the early church fathers made sense to Zwingli, but he lacked true spiritual devotion. This rift between head and heart manifested itself earlier when, amid his persuasive sermons and popular ministry in the Swiss town of Glarus, someone exposed Zwingli's wanton relationship with a mistress. Oh my goodness. His conscience was pricked, but not yet transformed. At this time, Zwingli reluctantly accepted a post at i can't pronounce that a monastery and a place of pilgrimage they were indulgences there were indulgences promised a hollow forgiveness or a hollow forgiveness through material means zwingli turned his thoughts to the scriptures to the writings of the early church and to his own heart as he preached there on god's grace zwingli began to find the rituals and trappings of roman catholic church lacking and he publicly denounced the local seller of papal indulgences Grace could not be bought and sold, he surmised, and while decrying the false hopes permeating this small town, Zwingli sought the scriptures for an understanding of free grace, which is kind of a redundancy, free grace, but anyway, um, let's see here, where was I? After all, this, after all, his own soul was at stake. God only knows when Zwingli discovered this saving grace, unmerited by pilgrimage or indulgence, but at Eisendown, Zwingli confessed his own sins publicly and declared God's saving grace to be sufficient for the salvation of souls. Soon, officials from Zurich noted his powerful oratory. They had reservations about him based upon past reputation. but he appeared changed. They soon invited him to become a priest at the Zurich Great Church. Europe would never be the same, and neither would Zwingli. Zwingli entered a city primed for the Reformation. His employers had little idea that they were hiring a reformer, and Zwingli himself might not have known how much he would change. change. Zurich's citizens, known for their fine army and penchant for political independence, found themselves drawn to their new preacher. The message that a person could come to Christ individually, sin in hand, apart from the mediation of Rome, resonated with the people. I bet it did. In a revolutionary step, Zwingli declared he would preach his own sermons on the Gospel of Matthew rather than follow the official Roman lectionary. The crowds responded enthusiastically, flocking to hear the word of God fresh and newly proclaimed. Zwingli found himself preaching in the marketplace on Fridays, so the crowds from surrounding villages might hear him. He proclaimed the sufficiency of faith in Christ, the deficiency of superstition and indulgences, the necessity of true repentance and godly living, and the importance of caring for the poor and needy, the widow and orphan. And widows and orphans there would be. In the summer of 1519, while vacationing, Zwingli received a desperate call to return home. The plague had had arrived. Three out of ten people died. Throughout this ravaged, desperate city, Zwingli diligently ministered. While attending to the sick and dying, he also became ill and lay for many days at death's door. Zwingli eventually recovered and went on to become the leading figure in the Reformation in German-speaking Switzerland. But it was just a matter of time before war broke out between Protestants and the armies of the Pope. A lifelong military chaplain, Zwingli died on the battlefield of Capel in 1531, defending a threatened freedom, the preaching of the gospel he had come to know and love. They asked, what factors do you think contributed to the success of Zwingli's ministry? Are you surprised to learn that God mightily used a person who had a mistress in his early days as a pastor? What lessons can you learn from the life of Ulrich Zwingli? And it says, exactly, this is exactly the psalm I was thinking of, and here it is. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done evil done what is evil in your sight which Psalm? yes david psalm 51 after he went into Bathsheba. exactly there you go um let's see here heavenly father we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to have your word uh uh, to share with others and to share in and we certainly pray for the gentleman that just walked through the door with a cut leg we would ask that you would heal his leg and uh, get him back into uh, doing jumping jacks very soon and we also pray for elise who has been uh, harmed physically by somebody else and we would pray that her stay in the hospital would be quick and it would be effective and she would be out and and uh but more than just her physical needs we would pray for her spiritual needs and for protection of her life in the days ahead from whoever it is that's assaulting her and lord we thank you once again for the chance to come here and share in your word and we love you and we praise you and we exalt you in jesus name amen Okay, we are in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26.
1: Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth.
0: Okay, and I haven't even turned to that page, and you're already done. So let me just read my notes, and we'll get on the next one. For the past eight verses, Paul has been speaking about the perceived foolishness of the message of the cross. Because it is something that the intellectual cannot grasp apart from God's divine revelation. It is considered foolish because of this. Surely, if there is a way to be saved, God would have revealed it in creation itself, right? I mean, that's what an intellectual would say. And because the religious man can't understand it apart from being viewed through the lens of Christ, it seems foolish. Likewise, because the philosopher can't find out how to be saved through mental ruminations, it also seems foolish, right? You've got a A religious person over in Tibet who's been meditating his whole life and he can't figure out how to be saved. And so he said, well, that can't be true because I spent my whole life pursuing this and yet I don't understand it. So a person that's in Greece and all he does is he thinks about philosophy and the nature of things. And he says, well, that's foolish because God would surely let us know how to figure these things out through the higher intellect. It doesn't matter what discipline. Look at this guy all the way from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Good to have you here. Um, so there you go. That's um, uh, that's the situation there is these people would think, you know, that they could figure out salvation. That's why it's a message that's contrary to much of the world. It's because people think that they have whatever their skill is ought to be sufficient for them to understand how to be right with God. And when they don't have a particular school skill, then they fall back on, well, I'm a I'm a good person. Yeah, fill in the blank. But specifically people say, well, I'm a good person. When you witness to somebody say, why should God let you into heaven? I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've heard that over the years. I'm a good guy. I'm I'm not as bad as this guy. Yeah, Compared to who? Exactly. And God does not grade on a bell curve. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. So uh, let's say I was thinking about, I actually did something that I never do. I do it twice a year. I did it today because I haven't been feeling so hot. I took a hot bath. And um, while I was sitting there thinking I was thinking you know if Christianity isn't true I have no desire to know any other way of getting to God I was thinking, Islam if you're 51% good Islam says that you can go to heaven you don't need to be a Muslim you just have to rate above 51% I said what's the point what's the point of living your life like that you have no idea based on what standard right. you have no idea and what is good what isn't and if I'm at 47% I ain't gonna make it so why even bother I, 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 there's no religious expression on this planet that I would say I could do that if Christianity wasn't true. Not one. It's either all God or it's all me. And it, there's nothing in between. It's got to be all God. So yeah, anyway, here we go. Um, and you got the, as I said, the religious person. person. You've got the, uh, uh, the intellectual. And you've also got the philosopher. However, these types of people are uh, generally the mighty, the noble, and the wealthy. They're the ones who have the smarts to make things happen. Think of Bill, what's his name, Bill Gates. Despite this, they don't have the ability to perceive that God may actually be smarter than they are. That the depths of his wisdom can never be fully sought out. And so based on these things, Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren. He is speaking to those who have heard the calling of God through the message of the cross and have received it. This is certain because he calls them, anybody? brethren exactly right he's calling them brethren because they are brothers in Christ to them he continues with that not many wise according to the flesh may not may many noble are called this doesn't mean that the wise can't be saved let me make a note here one second here sorry about that this doesn't mean that the wise can't be saved nor does it mean that a great number of them won't be saved but in comparison to the vast majority who are saved they are few in number some people are too smart to be saved. I've got somebody in my own family that acts that way. I just, I, I'm, just I'm too smart for that. I just heard a yup from the back seat, so I know that somebody else agrees with me. Some are certain that God must favor them because of their bloodline. I mean, you see that one all the time. People, well, you know, my dad's a preacher, whatever. You know, you just, their bloodline settles their eternal state. The thought is, if I was born into a great and wealthy family, then God must really like me such thoughts are are about, uh, such thoughts about self obscure the message of the cross which says that we must die to self and put on the garment of Christ having a righteousness that is not our own mental ability wealth position good looks which i have lots of fame and so on are all roadblocks to that right and personal relationship with god and thank goodness i understand that my good looks won't get me to heaven even though i have them right that it's a a hindrance to your relationship with god that can only come through the calling on the name of the lord and being saved by him apart from any personal merit okay it is by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god and not of works lest any man should boast. hence i decided to close out the year of bible studies with a grace shirt today because i thought I want the year to end on a good note, so I wore my thank you, Charlie, Missy, if you're watching, and if you're not, shame on you. Life application. (laughs) When you see the rich, famous, and wealthy making a mockery of God, pity them. They have a short life of ease and notoriety and an eternity of regret ahead of them. Pray that they will turn, humble themselves, and call out to Christ for salvation. And I was thinking about exactly that as I'm driving over the post office just a few minutes ago, and I was listening to... Matthew on I'm up to Matthew in the live Bible and Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and he's saying that you know that the sinners and the prostitutes are going to get into heaven before you or the kingdom of God before you right and I'm thinking these people thought they were the the cats meow they thought they were the bees knees we're the religious people we've dedicated our lives to this this and they're no further to God than an ant you know, they're just they're completely separate from God because it's all about self. It's about their works, about their pleasing God, and they had completely missed the fact that their sinners in need of a savior, just as even the high priest of Israel. Yes.
2: Aren't you glad the many is in there? Not many?
0: Yes, absolutely. I
2: mean, it is possible. There is Nicodemus, he was one of those elite. Yeah. Paul himself. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then there's Charlie, the brain.
0: That very smart theologian, I don't think so. But he is a good-looking one, so we'll leave it at that. Yeah, Even good-looking people can get into heaven. I'm certain of that because I'm saved by the blood of Christ. Yes? Uh, Queen Elizabeth said she was when she was asked what she most th- is most thankful for she said the letter m it doesn't say not any of royal birth yes yes many many she was At, grateful for the letter m the letter m that's pretty good now if you were the pope it would be the opposite because remember the last pope what was his name uh no the one before him the one that everybody paul what yeah john whatever he was 20 years he was in he had an m on his casket but it wasn't for many it was for mary so, yeah, can you imagine? Does, that's like your final slap in the lord's oh, face. I'm going to have a big M on my casket. Hello. Okay, one. Yeah. It's upside down, yeah. yeah. What did you say? He said it's a yeah. W for weenus. Yes. Weenus. that's the we. skin. Oh, <laughs> weenus is the skin on that end of we your know, elbow. Yeah, know, okay. We
1: okay. Remind us Oh, of the weenus. Yeah. Decades. It's it's like,
0: yeah. Okay, yeah, W for weenus. Okay, 127.
1: 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong.
0: Okay, and I'm finally just turning to the right page now. Okay, so uh, verse 27 begins with, but, to show support for what he just stated in the previous verse, which said, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but they do have an M on it. Though many of the brethren aren't wise, mighty, or noble, all they need to do is reflect on the fact that they are of the called despite their worldly state instead of skipping over them for those others god as paul says has the has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise how many out there with doctoral degrees think ever so highly of themselves professors teach in colleges and seminaries with impressive insights into academic matters, and yet they are devoid of any personal relationship with God through Christ. I may talk about one of them in the Prophecy Update this Sunday. We'll see if I include that article. And yet there are millions of high school dropouts who have called on Christ and are of the redeemed. Though they are looked down on by those of high learning, they are in fact the ones who have been granted the grace of eternal life. So which one is in the better position? The one that's got all kinds of wealth? sitting high in this life, or the one that is lowly and is called of Jesus. In addition to them, Paul says God has chosen many, chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. When I think of that immediately, I think of like over in uh, Syria when ISIS was shooting Christians and saying, recant or we're going to kill you, and they wouldn't do it. And I thought, these are the mighty, they've got the guns, and these are the weak, they don't, but these people are going to be judging those people. You know, right. the bullet in the head doesn't really matter if you know where you're going. Doesn't? Right. Yeah. Um, let's hear The other see
1: thing is Israel.
0: Oh, absolutely. Little teeny Israel, but they're eventually going to be at the head of the nations. It's coming soon <laughs> to a millennial kingdom near you, unless you're a Calvinist, then it probably isn't the case, but it is the case. It's just that they'll be surprised when it happens. Let's see here. Yeah. Okay. So there are many great athletes who boast in their strength. Because they are so exceptional by worldly standards, they often have great wealth and even move into politics or business later in life. But the puny weaklings who are overlooked have had time to reflect on the more important matters of life. While the athlete is exercising, the weakling is is home reading his Bible. The same is true with the mighty in military, political, or financial power in comparison to the average person who works a regular job and quietly lives out his life. Many a might of any sort is an opiate, which replaces one's instinctive need for God with feelings of self-worth and greatness. Instead of such sorts, God has revealed himself to those who simply and humbly live their lives and take time to seek him out. That is not an all, you know, the one thing that is rather disturbing is when Christians start pointing fingers at people that are rich because they're rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich, right? Matter of fact, I'll mention that at the beginning of the sermon on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with having expensive things. It's what, you know, how you prioritize your life is where it matters. That's where it matters. But there's nothing wrong in itself of being rich. And there's also nothing wrong with a pastor being rich because what's his name? Franklin Graham gets a pretty good salary, but he works his tail off to get it. And he has a lot of responsibility, but people don't like that. And they get jealous of that. And they say he's a false because he makes this much money. I don't care what he makes. If he works the job of a CEO, he probably makes a 10th of a CEO or even less than that. But it's a lot more than most Christians make on that scale. Doesn't bother me a bit. If he has earned it, let him have it. I have no, pr- it's better than these people that are in churches that pretend to be pious, right? But they're making millions of dollars and they're living in 2530000 30,000 square foot houses like, you know, Duplantis and some of these other people. It's crazy, you know, it, it, You've got to have another uh jet aircraft you've got to have this and that one thing and another but what were you gonna say
1: i was gonna say one of the most abused verses of the bible is the love of money yes is the root of many evils yes
0: money money, is, money is not the root of all evils yeah. so that's and right that, the that, love of with money
1: that, with that considered the people that are throwing stones at the billy Grahams it's like okay who loves it it sounds like you do yeah and now uh, he's just doing his thing
0: right? exactly so, yeah, they, they, they must love it because they're the ones that are jealous they're over it. it. Exactly. Okay, one twenty-eight.
1: Okay, he closed. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are.
0: Oh, okay. I see. I didn't read my life application. That's why I threw you up. Let me read that, and then I'll let you read that again. How's that? A life application on the last one talking about noble people, sports. Okay, just because somebody is prettier, stronger, more intellectual, or more powerful than you, there's no reason to be envious of them. In the end, beauty fades, the strong tire and age, the intellectual become forgetful, and the mighty go to the same grave as the rest those who have called on Jesus, though, have the sure promise that the grave is not the end of the story. By the power of Christ, we shall be raised to eternal life. What more could we hope for? And I am absolutely convinced of it. It's not like I hope this happens. It's not like I think, you know, geez, I, I'm absolutely convinced of it. There is nothing that will take away that joy from me. I may lose my joy in the regular operations of my workday, but I am not going to lose my joy in what is ahead It's simply not going to happen because I am 100% convinced of this word and I'm 100% convinced of what Christ has done. So go ahead and read 128 again. Sure.
1: He chose the lowly things of this world and the the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are.
0: Okay. Continuing on in the same line of the thought as the previous verse and the one before that, Paul shows that the things God decides upon and uses can be the least of all. And this is for a reason. If he chose the great things of the world, then the world could boast of their greatness before God. But by choosing the things which are weak and foolish, then God is exalted when he uses them to put to shame the mighty and the wise. Such is also true when he chooses the, as he says, the base things of the world. The base things are exactly the opposite of those things which are considered noble. Instead of choosing the blue-blooded, he goes to the uneducated and the lowly. Such people know how they, are accounted, uh, yeah, how they are accounted to those in the world around them. But when they find that God has a purpose for them and that he loves them, they, became, they become the greatest example of his tender mercies. Those who were once drug addicts or prostitutes realize the magnitude of the riches of Jesus Christ, and so their hearts will be radically changed in turning to him. The gratitude will never cease throughout the eternal ages think of the girl that went in wiped her Jesus feet with her hair and right washed them with her tears she was a grateful person whereas the other people had all the stuff they needed in life they were the cream of Israel and they didn't even offer him water to wash his feet this is the same the, the same is true as Paul says the things which are despised these God has chosen according to his wisdom this is true with his original selection of Israel we read it in Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 he said, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the people. So he specifically told them that's one of the reasons why he selected them was because they were small, they were lowly, they were despised. And yet He, think of it, they were in bondage in Egypt. They were the conquered and the Lord showed himself greatness. If they were the Egyptian empire, there wouldn't have been the sense of greatness when he redeemed them out of Egypt. They would have been upset because they took him out of their empire, right? So he picked somebody that was lowly, that was small, that was ridiculed and was in bondage and he brought him out. Surely the surrounding nations looked upon them, meaning Israel, with great contempt and thought they could snuff them out in a moment. And the Bible bears this out. Great nations came against Israel, and yet Israel prevailed. Gideon, and how many men? men. 300. thank you. 300 men triumphed over? It was actually 135,000, but they killed 120,000 of them in a single battle, right? 120,000 Midianites, a number like the sand of the seashore, it said. And how could this have been conceived of? Even Gideon, when given his commission, responded to the Lord with incredulity. He said, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So in the Old Testament, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, the Lord followed the same pattern that he follows in the New Testament. He goes to the lowliest, the weakest, and the basest in order to exalt them. When he picked David, he picked a guy that was small and ruddy, right he was the last of his brothers he was still out in the fields where the brothers were in the house he picked him so the Lord knows who to pick he knows the people that will respond properly sometimes they'll be rich sometimes they'll be whatever but he knows what is best and how he will gain the most glory through it however God used Gideon him the least of his father's house from the weakest clan of Manasseh and he was victorious Such is the case time and time again in the Bible, and such is the case again in the world today. Little Israel, as he noted a couple minutes ago, is hemmed in by enemies, and even her friends are working to tear her apart. And I typed this when our previous president was in office, and so even their their supposed best friends were there working behind the scenes to tear them apart. But what did the Lord do? He showed himself great by putting somebody into office that nobody thought would be in office. The entire left said he'll never be. Remember that montage on YouTube, one person after another, all the way up to the president. He will not be the next president. Where is he sitting now? In the White House defending Israel, right? So uh, let's see here. Uh, The friends are working to tear her apart. And yes, she again will prevail over the nations. You, like Israel and those who are despised and weak, can, to prevail when the Lord is at your right hand, so be encouraged of this. And finally, Paul adds in that God also uses the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. The pulpit commentary notes that the not is the Greek subjective negative, things of which men conceived as not existing, in other words, non-entities. He uses something that's so insignificant that people just completely ignored as not even existing, In other words that which appears to be absolutely nothing can be used by God as if it is something John the Baptist spoke this way to those who came to him in Matthew chapter 3 let me read you that Matthew yes that's probably the verse that we're looking at right there three let me see here eight Uh, is that what I said here I think I said three eight all right is that the one Uh, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, oh yes, that's a, that's a good one too, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's saying he could take somebody out of the stones themselves to make somebody great. All right, so there you go. God can uh, raise up children from mere stones, and he can raise you up as and use you as well this is the marvelous working of god in redemptive history from the very dust of the earth god formed the majestic being known as man intricately woven together and capable of amazing feats of intelligence and strength from one man who was old and childless came a group of people who have lasted and endured for four thousand years and from that line of people which included some of the worst sort came the human genealogy of the messiah of the world With God, nothing is impossible. If you are the called of the Lord, he may have chosen something weak, foolish, base, despised, or even considered as nothing. But if he has called you, then you are of more value than all of the high-minded, noble, and powerful people who have rejected him. Think of your position of honor in his eternal home and be satisfied with what the future holds for you. Life application. In Christ, you... Are a glorious jewel within heaven's treasure box radiant and precious um, before we go on I want to note somebody called me today and said that they could not find the sermon on the podcast from Sunday and that's because it's not in the number sermon it's a other sermon so you have to go to special category or something like that go to other category something it's just look for another category and it'll be there if you can't find it Email me and I'll send you the link to the podcast on the uh, Superior Word website. I don't know how to access iTunes, and um, or you can it's find it, the other, it. It's in the other. Okay, but uh, on iTunes or on the? No, I
2: just
0: on the Superior Word site. Uh,
2: I just went down to other on your Superior
0: Word. Okay, site. yeah, iTunes though. I don't know how that works, no, but no. I can send them a link if you didn't. If you can't find it, it's the Christmas sermon and. Uh, uh, Best sermon I ever preached. Too it bad some dead. of the people in here weren't here Sunday. Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just picking on Mabel and the doctor. They couldn't come, so. Sorry, i read
1: half of it already. What's that?
2: <laughs> i read it. Oh, good,
0: good, good. Yeah, and no, I was just making a joke. I was picking on them because I know you're not going to be here. in Burke, you Are you know. we chasing
2: rabbits for a little bit? We're
0: chasing rabbits. Go ahead.
2: Okay. Now, you said David to a little David. Yes. When he tried on Saul's armor, he said, I haven't tried this. Right. He didn't say it didn't fit. Yeah. And Saul was a big man. I'm wondering if David wasn't a
0: husky. Well, uh, the armor is going to be something that, you know, I don't think the armor is the way we look at it today where it fits perfectly. I think it's just something that drops over you because it does say that he was small and ruddy and whatever. Um, Where is that? Uh, And and that may have been a little later, but no, it wasn't. It was at the beginning of his thing. So what's that?
1: His description was
0: before that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, anyway, that's it could be, but Saul was the uh, head above everybody else in Israel, and yeah. David certainly wasn't. So, yeah. anyway, I think it's just something that they threw over them, okay. which was a protecting thing, but it's not like what we would think of today. You know, today we think of a knight that has something that's formed for their body, and, you know. Uh, a what? Kevlar well, Kevlar today. Yeah, Kevlar, yeah absolutely. Kevlar, Kevlar. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about modern times, like <laughs> knights and stuff. <laughs> knights of armor. Okay, anyway, 129.
1: Before I do that, I'll you at the end of this.
0: He wants me to call him? So can. Head shut. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to stop it a little early today, just to make sure that, uh, because one, I don't. We started early, and I don't want it to run over time, mm-hmm. because then it'll cause the guy that does the podcast trouble. But we'll stop early anyway, so I can make sure that I get him settled. Okay, go ahead. One twenty nine. So
1: that no one may boast before
0: him. Was that it? Oh, yeah. That I guess was it was. That. This one's a little different. It says that no flesh should glory in his presence. Okay, one twenty nine for several verses. Paul has been explaining how God chooses the weak, the foolish, and the despised to shame the mighty, the intellectual, and the noble. Because of this, there is no boasting before him. If such as these are chosen and not the others, then they are obviously considered lesser in any given category than those others, and so they can't boast that they were somehow great. But there is also the fact that some noble nobles are Christians. Some mighty are Christians. And some highly intellectual people are as well how then can this statement be considered an all-encompassing truth the reason is that those who are in such positions had to step down from where they were away from those around them and humble themselves just like those of lesser status the ground is level at the foot of the cross all are bound under sin and so no one can reach higher than any other in expectation of being saved therefore those who are of the higher position on earth were actually more humbled in their status before being saved than those of lower position. You see that? As Paul tells us in Romans 3.27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. He asks, by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. In his ever-consistent way of explaining theology, Paul shows that it is faith which saves, and so regardless of status or works of the law or any other thing, all must ultimately and completely credit God for their salvation. And for this reason, no flesh, as he says, should glory in his presence. The term flesh is being used to consider the whole man. All who stand before God have nothing in and of themselves which they can glory or boast in. When the redeemed stand in his presence, we will not glory in ourselves. We will give the glory to God. As this is absolutely truthful for us now and certain for us at that time, then let us endeavor to live as if it's true. In all things, let us give God the glory. Life application If you feel that you somehow merit your salvation because of who you are, or if you feel that you must somehow merit your salvation through works, then you probably aren't saved. Salvation is a gift bestowed upon one who does not deserve it. Accept the gift and rest in the work of Christ alone. You don't have Galatians 6.14 in there? Galatians 6.14, that's the one we read last week. I boast in the cross of Christ alone. Go ahead and read it, though.
2: May it never be that I would boast, this was it in this verse that he just read, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the world world has been crucified to me, and I and I to the world.
0: Wonderful. I guess that's probably my second second favorite verse in the Bible. <laughs> Number one is Hebrews 12, too, and then that one has got to be close to second. Alright, 130 it is.
1: It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption.
0: Okay. This one is same same thought, but written quite different. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. All right, in the past four verses, Paul has been writing about the workings of God, specifically mentioning God three times. One, God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Two, God has chosen the weak things of the world. And three, the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. After that, he noted that because of God's efforts, no flesh should glory in His presence, because all was a work of God. Then we come before Him with empty hands. Now, when people tell you, especially uh, Reformed theologians, Calvinists, etc., and they say, "Well, if you say that you've cho- chosen Jesus, then that's boasting before God, or that's a work, or some," not at all. That never negates free will in the Bible. Ever, it never does. Not free will of Israel, not free will of the individual, not. For sinning, not against sinning, not for salvation, or not choosing Christ. Free will is a tenet which is taught explicitly all the way through the Bible. All right? That has nothing to do with boasting before God. Why? Anybody?
1: Because your belief was in God. So how can
0: you... Exactly. He's done everything. He's done absolutely everything. What he said is your belief is in God. God sent Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. Christ came out of the grave. God did everything necessary for us to be saved. So there's no boasting on our part by saying, I receive what Jesus did. Because it's not doing anything. I can say, I'm going to sit down. All I'm doing is sitting down, right? It's not really doing anything. When you I'm call... just taking
1: the word or that, that phrase to an extreme. Because, okay, let's change it to sports. Like, okay, right. I'm on the team i right. boasting that I'm on the team. It's like, right, but you're not the team. You're not the team. And the team is going to win whether or not you're there. You might be
0: sitting on the right. sidelines doing absolutely nothing, right. Right. but the team still wins. Right. That's a it's, it's, that's very good analogy there. It is one of those things that when people try that with you, when you hear Calvinists try to say that to you and say, no, that's not correct. You are doing something. You're taking away the glory of God by receiving Jesus. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. You are giving the glory to God by receiving Jesus because he has done everything. And you're saying, I'm giving you the glory and accepting what you have done. That's not depriving him of anything. That is honoring of him. To say, I'm not going to receive Jesus, that is denying him of his glory. But they turn it around. They subtly twist things. And so when you're, you know, approached with this type of theology, be ready to defend it. Christ did everything. All he's asking me to do is believe that. That's it. All right. Choose. Choose.
2: Well, Joshua yeah choose you this day he you will serve that's right in my house, we'll
0: we will the serve Lord. the Lord. Yeah. sounds like a Joy. volitional act of the will to me that's Joy. what it sounds like, yeah, one hundred percent all right, so let's see here um um let me read that again after that he noted God's efforts, no flesh should glory in his presence because all was a work of God. Then we come before him with empty hands. There can be no boasting in self because of the work of another, and so. In verse 30, he begins with, but of him. This is speaking of God, who has been noted as the one who has accomplished the work of reconciliation, which began with his selection of us. It is of him, meaning God, that you are in Christ Jesus. Selected us, and God selected us, and God did the work for us through his son. Because we have received the work of Christ, we are in Christ. We move from Adam to Christ. From death to life, from condemnation to salvation. Thank you. We have. I'm just making sure everybody's awake. We have moved into a positional relationship with God by being in Christ Jesus, who became for us, as Paul says, the wisdom from God. As seen in the previous verses, the calling of God is predominantly among the weak, the base, the despised, and so on, according to the world's standards. And even those who are highly intellectual, mighty or of noble uh, origin had to let go of self and humble themselves before God. This is because the great attribute what they possess, or I'm sorry, the, the great attribute they possess is actually nothing before him. Rather than our own wisdom, we find the wisdom from God when we find Christ. All things make sense. Life has purpose. The reason why we are here suddenly becomes clear. The scriptures with their unusual stories suddenly clear up and are understandable. It is in Christ and only in him that such wisdom can be attained. And all along with the wisdom, we also received more. In Christ, there is one, righteousness. This is Paul's words, righteousness. Before coming to Christ, we were unrighteous. As humans, we bear sin, both inherited sin and committed sin. Sin is an offense to God. And thus we are born in and continue in unrighteousness until it is removed in Christ. Before I go on, does everybody understand that? Even if we do great things like, what's his name, Bill Gates, giving billions of dollars to aid research, it is tainted with sin. And it doesn't matter how much we do good. It will never take away the sin which envelops us. And that's why we need to have atonement. The word in Hebrew comes, it's the word kaphar. It means to atone, to cover. God is covering us with Christ's righteousness, and that's where you get the uh, the picture of uh, the white garments. Right? It's Christ's covering, His purity, which is covering our sinful state. And without that, it doesn't matter what you do. The
2: blood on the mercy
0: seat. The blood on the mercy seat covers the. Mer- and what happened when they took the mercy seat off of the ark? Remember, it was taken after it came back from Gaza and uh, Ekron, and they <coughs> sent it up there, and the people took off the covering. Right? What happened? says all the people died because there was no longer the blood covering the law they looked at God's perfect holy law and it condemned them okay the blood is what covers so uh let's see and that's typology there that's not actually real we don't look at the ten Commandments and die but Israel was used in typology for us to understand what was coming in Christ and that's why those people died is because they looked at God's law without the covering of christ's shed blood what you said something back there No? Okay. Um, So, uh, let's see here. Um, Yeah, we've moved into that positional relationship. And then this is, uh, where was I? Okay, rather than our own wisdom, we find the wisdom from God when we find Christ. All things make sense. I said that. Life. Oh, I was way down here. Sorry about that. Let me go down here. Righteousness. I said that. I'll read it again, though. Before coming to Christ, we were unrighteous. As humans, we bear sin, both inherited and sin-committed. It's an offense to God, and thus we are born in and continue in unrighteousness until it's removed in Christ. At the cross, a transfer is made. Our unrighteousness is transferred to Christ to be removed at his death. And his righteousness is imputed to us. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let me read you that really quickly, just so you know this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, I'll just start back in 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to him self through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here's what it says for he made him meaning Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the doctrine of imputation. Our sin was imputed to Christ. All right. He didn't have his own sin, so it didn't affect him in his being, but our sin was imputed to him. And so he died for our sin. He died. Our sin died with him. And then he came out of the grave because he had no sin of his own to live forever. He can never die again. At the same time, our righteousness or Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. So there was a transfer, his righteousness, our unrighteousness. And once it's done, it is done. I hate to tell people that say that you can lose your salvation, but they have not thought through these core doctrines of Christianity at all. They have not, they've thought through a little bit, or they've taken verses and they said, well, this verse says, I don't care what that verse says when it's not in context. In the context of scripture, the transfer is done and it is done once and it is done forever go back up two verses from uh to verse 19 oh i've already turned it but it says god is not counting our sins against us he's not imputing our sins to us anymore and that means that we cannot die again and we also cannot lose what god has done because there's no imputation of sin sin the wages of sin is death if you aren't being imputed sin then you cannot die that's right there you go so that's the Righteousness that Paul was speaking of. And then we get to number two, sanctification. Because of our position in Christ, we are sanctified by his spirit. Prior to Christ, we were deemed unholy and unclean before God. But our position in him means that we are considered holy and pure. This doesn't mean that we have actually attained this state, but that we are regarded as such because of Christ. In position, we are sanctified. It's a done deal. Okay, now we are being sanctified at the same time. We're going through a process of sanctification. If we die tomorrow, then that will be how far we sanctified ourselves in this life. If we live 50 more years, we might get better in the process. We are living in a process of sanctification, but in God's eyes, we are sanctified. It's done. There's one time it, you don't lose it, you don't go back from it, nothing. It, you are sanctified, okay? And then finally, the third is redemption. Jesus said that the one who sins is a slave... To sin that's John 8 34 if you sin you're a slave to sin John confirms that he who sins is of the yeah. devil 1 John 3:8. because we are born into sin and continue in a life of sin the devil is our master but Christ Jesus can redeem us from this through his work when we receive him by faith meaning a volitional act of the will we are redeemed from the power of the devil Because we are so redeemed, we are in Christ and can never lose this position. Once again, we can go back to 2 Corinthians 5.19 that I just read you, that God is not counting men's sins against them. Or this translation would say God is not imputing to us our sins. All right. If we falter, it doesn't change our position because God is no longer counting our sins against us. The doctrine of eternal salvation is written all over this concept. What kind of a savior would come to us? only provide eternal insecurity you tell me why would christ come die on the cross and say i'm saving you just so that you can be insecure in that salvation for the rest of eternity that's not the god of the bible not in any way shape or form rather in him we are declared righteous we are sanctified and we are redeemed this is the marvelous work of god in christ for us life application to be in christ is the sweetest place to be All right. Psalm 17.3.
2: Sanctify them through thy truth.
0: Thy word is truth. You
2: know, he sanctifies us, but we live to be more like him. His word is truth.
0: That's right. Did you say Psalm 17.3? John John 17.3. Yeah, when you said that, at first I thought you said Psalm, and I said Psalm. (laughs) Yeah, well, it doesn't matter. It's John. We know that. So, all right, go ahead. 131.
1: Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts,
0: in the Lord. Woo-hoo. This one says, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. Hey, this is our last verse of the first chapter. We are buzzing along. Wow. All right. The last verse of chapter one begins with, as it is written. Thus, Paul is going back to the only scriptures of his day, which were the Old Testament. Yep. In order to make a summary point concerning his thoughts of the past 21 verses. His quote is a condensed citation of Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24 so let me read you those just so we have the full context of what he was looking at jeremiah thus says the, lord, thus, the wise oh he's got man the... glory in his wisdom but not
1: the mighty man glory in his might nor let the rich man glory in his riches but let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me that i am the lord exercising loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth for in
0: Good job. All right. In Christ alone is where our boasting is to lie. In the Old Testament, the saints were supposed to boast only in the Lord Jehovah. All right. And they didn't. And Christians don't always boast in the Lord Jesus. But that is where our boasting is to lie. The reason why we boast in the Lord Jesus is because he is the Lord Jehovah incarnate. All right. We need to make that understood because if you're a Jehovah's witness, you don't believe that. You believe that he's a created being that is if you don't understand that you want to go and you want to start reading the uh, commentaries that I've been doing in the book of Romans it is so obviously clear that the author of Hebrews is ascribing Jesus to Jehovah of the Old Testament it cannot be missed it is impossible to miss it if you follow it through line by line it is absolutely impossible because he cites the Lord in the Old Testament and he says this is speaking of jesus it is absolutely clear so if you haven't been reading those go back and read one a day it'll take you 303 days to get through it and you will have theology from the book of hebrews romans and hebrews romans and hebrews i would suggest that everybody here read them at least five times in a row and then do a study on them romans is, we've already got on video hebrews is being done right now but we're already up to chapter nine right now so i mean you're it's going to take you a long time to catch up but those are you will understand proper theology if you understand what is being said in the book of Hebrews. Uh, let's see here. Uh, 21 verses. Yeah. In Christ alone is where a boasting is to lie. It does not belong to any man. One, there should be no divisions within the church. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas, etc. Two, there should be no following after the great learned of the world whether a pagan or a well-trained and faithful follower of christ like i follow aristotle or i follow john calvin or i follow albert einstein or i follow billy graham three there should be no desire to emulate the mighty and four our goal should not be to seek after a nobleman a politician or a movie star And it's hard not to because, you know, if somebody famous shows up in town, the first thing you want to do is have your picture taken with that person to prove that you are somebody special because you were with that person. That's the most common thing in the world. But when we do that, we should at the same time say glory to God. I got a chance to tell this person about Jesus Christ. That would be the appropriate thing to put down under your selfie with that person is I took the time to tell this person who thinks they're great and I'm supposedly acknowledging they're great that he's got somebody greater that he's accountable for. Anyway, that's what I would recommend. Rather than these things, which are divisions within the church, following after the great of the world, not a desire to emulate the mighty, and not seeking after a nobleman or a politician, rather than these things, or any other potential division in our allegiance concerning our spiritual life in Christ, we should direct our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our attention to what God has done in him, meaning in Christ. In essence, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's Paul's words. It is Christ who is the head of the church. It is Christ who demonstrates and reveals to us the wisdom of God. In Christ are found the otherwise unsearchable riches of knowledge and understanding, both in the created order and in scripture. In Christ is all power and all strength, and in Christ is all greatness and all majesty. Surely then, if these things are true, let us boast in and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Anybody want to disagree with that? Absolutely not. I hope not. Life application. Why trade your allegiances for something less than what is the greatest of all? As Jesus Christ is the epitome of all perfection and all that is good and wonderful, let him alone be your hope, your desire, your aspiration, and your love. We're in chapter 2. We are. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence
1: or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God.
0: Oh, boy. Paul begins chapter 2 with a comparison of himself to what he had just given concerning the called in Christ. In 126 through 31, he showed that God chose the foolish, the weak, the base, and the despised, as opposed to the high and lofty, mighty, noble, and so on. And the reason he did this was so that, as we finished out the last chapter, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. This is the basis for his words, and I. Instead of having come as a great orator or a captivating persona, he reminds them of the type of person he is and was. And I, brethren, is his words, then makes a double comparison. First is the and I, which is the comparison to his previous words. And brethren— is his way of demonstrating that he is just like they are brethren. They're all on the same level. They are not subjects or otherwise lesser in some way. After so presenting himself, he reminds them of when I came to you. Paul is now in Ephesus and is calling to memory the manner in which he presented himself to the Corinthians. With his arrival, he didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom to declare to them the testimony of God. The Greek word for excellence indicates elevation or superiority. He didn't come in that fashion. His speech wasn't in self-authoritative manner. Instead, it was of the authority of the cross and of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul directed his listeners not to himself, but to the one he proclaimed. The Greek word for declaring that he put here implies an authoritative proclamation. In other words, the substance of his words Not the manner in which they were presented was where the authority rested. And that's the way that we need to always present Christ. Not on our wisdom, but on the authority of God in Christ. Unfortunately, the substance of the message had been forgotten, or at least in part, as we will continue to see throughout this epistle. And unfortunately, it continues to be forgotten or disregarded in the world today. Congregations follow after exactly the opposite of what Paul states in this verse. Rather than the authority of the gospel, congregants look to the presentation of the messenger. I hear this a lot. People will say, well, I went to this church with this famous pastor and I got to sit right in the front row. Do I care? I, I, I got to tell you, that, that really doesn't mean anything to me. I can sit on TV and watch him, right? I'm in the front row, right? I see him closer than you did, right? But it's like, I got his autograph and things like, it, it, that's unimportant. What matters is the message he's preaching. If you're worried about him, then you're obviously not listening to the message. The message is what is important. If he's not preaching a good message, then you probably shouldn't have gone to that church anyway. I don't care how famous he is.
1: What does the preacher would even give you?
0: That. Yeah, Anything like that. I mean, I got, I got my picture taken with him. We went out to lunch with him or whatever. I mean, well, that's great if he's a humble guy and he takes you out to lunch. But if you're like, I, I don't know. I mean, I just people have to make sure that they are focusing on Christ. That guy gave the best sermon on Christ I've ever heard in my life. He preached on Ephesians chapter. I've never heard anybody open it up like that. That's what I would, I'd be like, I'm so glad to hear that from you. You tell me that, oh, he was wearing blue suede shoes and I don't care. It means nothing. Obviously that means nothing to me, but anyway, (laughs) whatever. Instead of the power of the message of the cross, the eloquence of the preacher is of paramount importance. I see that all the time. If you flick on the TV and you see somebody like John Hagee's church full of people, and his message is really not good, it's not a sound theology. He inserts things into the Bible, he skips over parts of the Bible that he shouldn't skip over, etc. But he is a great, and I'll give him that. He is a great orator. I wish I had the skill to speak like that guy does. But I would, in all of the world, not tr- exchange. One bit of theology for great oration. Not one bit. Not one. You have to have the message down properly. And if the message doesn't matter, then all of the oration in the world is just simply eyewash. This is truly sad that people have this attitude that after 2,000 years of holding the Bible open in churches for eyes to see and perceive, the preacher is valued more than the message. How sad. Life application? Better a dispassionate speaker with the message of Christ than the greatest orator with something else.
2: At the beginning of the Bible, he said, Moses, tell them what I told you. Right. And it goes on. Isaiah, tell them what I told you. I'm going to make your head. He told Ezekiel the same thing. Jeremiah, I told same you. thing. And he goes to the New Testament and then God speaks at the baptism. This is my son. I want you to hear him. He's no, that was here. at the transfiguration.
0: The transfiguration.
2: transfiguration.
0: You said baptism, but that's okay.
2: Oh, well, at the baptism, he said, "My beloved." son. Oh, this
0: is my beloved son. That's correct.
2: And, and, and also at the transfiguration. transfiguration.
0: Yes. That's right. Yes. Hear See, him. T-
2: t- Paul says, "I'm telling you what he said." He, it, right here it says, t- "Tell them of the uh, testimony of God." The testimony, that's right. His testimony of his son. I'm pleased in my son.
0: Absolutely, it's not know, about, it's about the Jesus person. And
2: him crucified. Paul Absolutely
0: said. right. Now I do say Paul, and I say it all the time. I say Paul, and the reason why is because Paul's body of letters are what we use for our authority in this dispensation. But I never fail to acknowledge that Paul was inspired of God. He was chosen as the apostle to the Gentiles, etc. I will always add that in somewhere along the line. I'm not exalting Paul over Christ. I'm saying that, let's go there right now, just so that you understand this. Acts chapter 9, where is this? I hope I got the right chapter. Give me a second. I'm pretty sure it's Acts chapter 9. Yes, it says here, Uh, verse 13. Then Ananias, let's go back to 11. So the Lord said to him, arise, go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So this is the Lord telling this guy, Ananias, I want you to do this thing. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You don't know what you're talking about, Lord. I'm I'm trying to correct you so you don't make a big mistake. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. And it never deviates from that when it says Gentiles. Nobody else is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles in the New Testament. It is Paul. Paul is the one that was chosen by Jesus. He was ordained by Jesus. He was healed by Jesus, actually through the hand of Ananias and the Holy Spirit. But it's Christ who did it. All right. And he says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So we have to make a distinction when we talk about where we are getting our theology from. Because if I say And I have people say this to me. They'll email and they'll say, well, you're discounting the words of Jesus. No, I'm putting them in the proper dispensation. When Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't speaking to the Gentiles. He was speaking to Israel. When Jesus said the things he said in Matthew 24 about no man will know the day or the hour, he wasn't speaking to the Gentiles. We were not in the equation. Not one hint of that until after or on the night of the Lord's Supper, Jesus the new it covenant. Itself, that's right. He says that explicitly. Uh, comes and like,
1: you know, heal my daughter. Like I, haven't
0: house, uh, to, uh, I haven't been sent to the house, to. I haven't been sent only to the uh, house, lost the, house of Israel. Well, yeah, that's right. And he says, I'm not sent to you yet. It's, it's it, not, time. It's not it's time. time. That's right. But she had a very wise answer. And he said, for that answer, you may go. Your daughter is healed. And sure enough. So that's exactly right. Make sure that you always keep your dispensations Proper, because if not, you're going to have confused theology. I get that constantly with emails. And I have to say, I want you to know he's not speaking about that in Matthew 13. He's not referring to that in Matthew chapter 7. He said, anytime you take what he says here and what Paul says here and you mix them together, what are you going to get? Confused. You are always going to have confused theology if you mix dispensations. Not sometimes. It will always happen. Always. You will not have proper doctrine if you confuse the dispensations. Who is being spoken to is the first thing that you are to find out. When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, who is he speaking to? He was speaking to Israel. No, he was speaking to the Romans. That's right. Romans were a Gentile people. There were Jews there, but his address is to the Romans. His address is to the Corinthians. His address is to the Galatians, the Ephesians, the uh, Colossians. They are all Gentile people. They're all sons of Japheth, all of them, every one of his letters. When you get to the book of James, it suddenly changes. Who is it written to? Yeah, that's right. The Jews of the dispersion, right? The 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, says Peter, or vice versa, whatever. Anyway, they are writing, writing to a different audience. It no longer applies in the same way as it applies to us. And Hebrews in particular, if you don't understand that, that doctrine that you have from the book of Hebrews is going to be Wrong. It is going to be completely wrong. We are included in what he says in many of the precepts in Hebrews, but he is not addressing us. And there's a distinction between the two. He is addressing Israel about matters which pertain to Israel. There is overlap, and so you have to be careful. But he is not addressing the Gentile churches. As a matter of fact, we know that it was Paul that wrote it. I never say that the way it was called the author because Paul didn't sign it. But we know it was Paul because Peter refers to the letter. In his own letter and he says Paul wrote to you so we know that Paul wrote that letter but I will not call him Paul because he didn't call him Paul and it's not appropriate to pre or suppose what God does not put into Scripture Faithful but we know Jews do not like Paul. no that's right that's another thing if Paul had signed it it would never ever have the effect that it has had on many Jews over the years that's exactly right so you have to make a
1: point that okay because our doctrine for church age Paul, but we do not worship Paul. It's that's like, right. There's so many times are like, well, obviously you care little for Jesus because all you talk about right. is Paul. It's
0: like, No, that's okay. your dispensations being solidified. That's right. Paul is the chosen. That's Acts chapter 9, what I just read you. He is the chosen messenger. So there you go. 2 2.
1: 2 2. Okay. 4. I resolved to know nothing while oh. I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified him. Yeah.
0: Okay. Good job. 4 builds upon what he has just stated that he did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. In other words, when going to the Greeks who look for polished speech and fine oratory skills, or when going to the Jews who look for a competent evaluation of the scriptures, and being a Pharisee, he could easily provide this, he determines that these wouldn't be his means of proclaiming Christ. Instead of being caught up in a flashy presentation or in a detailed and hair-splitting study of scriptural subtleties, he would be consumed with the contents of the message itself it was Paul's determination not to know anything among you that's his words not to know anything among you in this phrase to know is the Greek deny I deny based on verse 1 he is indicating that he wouldn't be engaged in or regard anything other than what he had predetermined to proclaim there would be nothing flashy There wouldn't be anything sensational nor anything without one soul and determined purpose. And that purpose included nothing, as he says, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. When you are evaluating scripture like we are right now or like we do on Sunday, it is always proper to evaluate scripture from the lens of Christ. As he said where is that um, uh, if Jesus Christ and him crucified Old Testament and New, it all points to that and if you are not doing that when you're evaluating Scripture I don't think you're doing it properly it's wonderful to hear an uplifting sermon don't get me wrong I wouldn't begrudge anybody going to a church and saying man that that was a really uplifting sermon but if it didn't get into why Christ is presented in that passage It was not of any edifying value for you. None. All it did was it kind of just built you up temporarily. It will not in any way prepare you for understanding the hard times that are coming or any of those other things. If you know Christ and you are set in Christ, it doesn't matter what happens in this world. You will prevail over it. You will be content. You may not be happy about it, but you will be content. All right. So in a world which looked for and still looks for today, eloquence, and a composure and oral delivery, Paul overlooked these things. He had a specific message which which did not need flash. Later in 2 Corinthians 10, it will be noted that his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. To him, refining these things for his delivery could only subtract from, not add to the message. His message was Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the fulfiller of the law. But even more specific his message was him crucified the word crucified here is emphatic the very thing to which which the very thing which is to the jews a stumbling block and to the greeks foolishness which he said in verse 123 is the same thing that he asserted above all else before the cross all eloquence fades away before the cross all wisdom is weighed before the cross only before the cross, scripture becomes clear. Without the cross, nothing can ultimately make sense because it is without. Because without it, sin remains. What Jews overlooked and what Greeks snubbed their minds at and turned their eyes from is the most excellent of all of God's workings. The most excellent. As Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8. verse 8 yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ (sighs) life application what shames a church isn't the preachers delivery be he an eloquent orator or a monotone speaker It isn't derived from a beautiful presentation of music, order, and intriguing detail from life's lessons or a haphazardly put-together gathering. A church's shame isn't realized in a small, dirty building or a large, exquisite cathedral. Instead, it is found in a message which fails to proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ every time a congregation meets as a church if the person of jesus christ is not exalted and if the cross is not highlighted that church has failed to glorify god that's it that's the end of that story two three
1: i came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling.
0: building on his last two sentences which said that he came to corinth not with excellence of speech or of wisdom but he came only proclaiming jesus christ and him crucified Paul will now add in a note concerning his own dependency on the Lord. As he came, he states that he was with you. Vincent's word study says that this should rather be I became instead of I was. In other words, what he will describe is something that either grew out of his time there or that was increased during his time there. As he was there for over one and a half years, this is not unlikely. Regardless of the tense used to describe him, The facts were evident to his readers as he calls them to mind. He was in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul contrasting himself to fine orators and bold proclaimers of the world was a much more feeble and timid person. His weakness was probably a defect of the eyes. He once stood in the same room with a group of people, including the high priest, and the exchange in Acts 23, 1 through 5 took place. Here's what it says there in Acts 23, 1 through 5. 23 1 through 5 says then paul looking earnestly at the council said men and brethren i have lived in all good conscience before god until this day and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth then paul said to him god will strike you you whitewashed wall for you sit to judge me according to the law and you do command me to be struck contrary to the law and those who stood by said do you revile god's high priest then paul said I did not know brethren that he was the high priest for it is written you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people also in his letter to the Galatians he said this take you there four, fifteen. 15 what then was the blessing you enjoyed for I bear witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me Additionally, Paul was known to write with unusually large letters, which is a sign of bad eyesight. That's found in Galatians 6, 11. Finally, Paul notes in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, that he had an affliction, which he asked the Lord to remove. Three times he implored the Lord. However, Christ told him that his grace would be sufficient for him, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. With this probable Probable weakness of the eyes, or something which was comparable to it, which he openly writes about, he preached the gospel to those in Corinth. But more, he says he did so in fear. He was a man continuously targeted by those around him. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he will describe some of those fears. Let me read that to you. Wow, you can hear that airplane like it's right next to us, can't you? Goodness gracious is it a car oh it's a car with no muffler i thought it was sarasota airport because when the wind is blowing just right you'll hear it like that but out on the bay i'm telling you on the bay you will it'll echo right down the bay yeah 2 corinthians 11 let me see here 2 corinthians I've got to get through uh chapter yeah chapter 11 and then verses 24 through 28 it says from the jews five times i received 40 stripes minus one three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned and that doesn't mean with pot Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches who is weak and i am not weak who has made the stumble and i do not burn with indignation and he goes on let me finish the chapter because we're there if i must boast i will boast in the things which concern my infirmity the god and father of our lord jesus christ who is blessed forever knows that i am not lying we'll stop there his troubles and fears became so great while he was in corinth That the Lord personally came to him to reassure him that he was being watched over. That's found in Acts chapter 18, where he says this. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. Make sure I got that. Yeah, it says it. Um, Household and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And finally, Paul notes not only the weakness and the fear, but also much trembling. Above all, Paul was a man who trembled. This wasn't a result of the bodily arms which came his way, but in the thought that he would fail the Lord who called him, and thus he would grieve the spirit with whom he was sealed. It was his strongest passion to proclaim Christ, finish the race, And in whatever manner the Lord was so pleased for his end. To accept that end with confidence, if only he could be faithful, he would be pleased with the life he led. This constant battle against his own weakness caused him to tremble. And I think that every time I'm in the church, I hope I don't say something that will embarrass the Lord. I think that all the time. Because if you do, then somebody is going to have their faith affected by it. Somebody will. And I think that exact same thing constantly. Life application. got a couple more minutes. Have you determined to exalt the Lord at all costs and to never diminish his glory in the eyes of another? This is our highest calling in life. Let us not fail in this endeavor. We'll do one more and that should probably get us right to where we need to go. 22-4.
1: My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power.
0: All right. Still building on his previous three verses, Paul continues with his manner of personal delivery of the message he brought to Corinth. The fact that he has spoken about himself and continues to in this verse, in this way, will be explained in the verses ahead. But it's obviously important that he reminds them of it in order to ensure that they mentally go back and see the truth of what he's saying. And so in his continued thought, he says that my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Now remember, he's writing to a people about what he had done when he was among that group of people. In other words, he can't be lying to them. He is reminding them of what he has done. So they cannot be thinking, well, this isn't the guy that, you know, he's writing a letter that isn't truthful. And he does this all the way through his writings. When he writes and he refers to something else that somebody knows about, he's validating the very thing that he's writing them about. It's a very good way of handling things. So uh, I'm going to read that again. And so in his continued thought... Uh, he says that my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, human wisdom. His speech would include his private conversations and his witnessing to individuals and so on. When he sat and spoke together with others, he didn't try to bamboozle them with, with a lot of overly intellectual words. His preaching would be his public discourses, whether preaching to an entire group or standing on a street corner proclaiming Christ, he kept his message simple, concise, and clear. In fact, in both his private and public speaking, it was not with persuasive words of human wisdom. When cooing a potential spouse, we may use words we wouldn't use towards a general friend. I'd hope not. When trying to sell a product, the salesman will talk in an excited manner about the product and not leave a chance for interruptions. When a politician speaks, it is unheard of, for them to give negative Im- impressions about themselves. Instead, they act as if they are the epitome of integrity and capability. In these and many other such instances, we use human wisdom to effect the change in those we are targeting. The silver-tongued young man wants to obtain the lovely bride. The industrious salesman wants to be promoted and get his commissions. And the politician desires to be in his position of authority and in the back pocket of his constituents. But their external motiva- these are me- external motivators. Their crafty speech of human design is employed. But Paul rejected this method when presenting the gospel to others. Instead, he came to them in demonstration of the spirit and of power. His words, unlike the eager lover, may have had words directly cutting to the heart of the listener. You violated God's law. His words, unlike the salesman, may have had words which would normally blow a sale. Without Jesus, you cannot be saved. And his words, unlike the politician, may have had thoughts which were self-debasing. I, too, am a sinner, like you. I rely solely on the merits of Jesus Christ, my Lord. You'll never hear a politician say that. It's not going to happen. In any words he spoke, his thoughts would have been contrary to what one would expect to obtain the desired results when dealing in non-spiritually related matters. But in the case of the gospel, it is the Spirit who authored scripture. It is the Spirit who gives the plan of salvation, and it is the Spirit who calls the lost soul to come and be saved. Paul's words were in line with the Spirit's intent for those who would hear and believe, and they were filled with the power to save. As he wrote in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. Like life application. I said this a couple weeks ago, I think in this class, and here I forgot that I'd done this as a life application. Marilyn McCoo, anybody remember who she is? Fifth Dimension, right? Once a member of the pop band, the Fifth Dimension, had been presented the message of Jesus on several occasions, but to no avail. Then someone brought the Bible along when they talked to her. In opening and showing her the word of God and allowing her to look at it directly, she saw in it the wisdom of God and the power of God. She was converted. When witnessing, stick to the gospel and stick to what the Spirit has provided. Yeah. He will effect his purposes without us getting in the way. Best way to do it. Anytime you try to introduce your human words of wisdom, you're going to fail. I can tell you that personally a thousand times thinking I've got this all wrapped up and I find out that I shouldn't have said the things I said. I should have stuck to the Bible. Stick to the gospel and you will have a much more likely uh, convert than you will by trying to impress them with how smart you are. It's good to know things that show you're intelligent. You can talk about those things all day long after somebody is saved, but until they're saved, you want to give them the gospel. Just what the spirit provided That will take care of it. All right. We'll say a quick prayer and we will be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be here in this uh, class. We thank you for the blessings of this life, for a good Christmas behind us. Many of us had friends and family by, and uh, we had uh, special service, which was hopefully honoring of you. And we're looking forward in the next few days to coming into a new year. And we would feel that it would be wonderful. I'm sure every person here would feel it would be wonderful if you would come and swoop us out of here, either before this year ends or during the next year. We would be very happy and content with that. But we're going to leave it in your capable hands, knowing that you have a plan which is far better than our hopes and our desires. So whether we stay here or whether we go with you, help us to do our job in the process. And in the meantime, help us to be willing to speak about the glory of Jesus Christ to your honor and to your glory and to nothing else, just that you will be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.